How would you like to improve your relationship? How would you like to respond differently in a way that facilitates mutuality and encourages connection? We look forward to addressing these issues together and welcome you to Ask Arlo, a program that seeks to help you identify negative patterns and respond in new ways that can promote a more positive relationship. Now, here is the host of Ask Arlo, Arlene Majorano. I'm Arlene Majorano, and this is my guest, Karen Ginsberg from the um, Gestalt Training Institute of Philadelphia. So welcome, Karen, and thank you. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about the different attachment styles and their ramifications for connection and relationship. Yes? Yes. All right. Oh, and we're also going to answer a question that somebody sent me, so I'm going to tell you the question. Uh, I'm going to repeat the question, and then we're going to address that question among other issues when, when we talk back and forth. So the question is, I am a person with good awareness and emotional intelligence, but I find that when a relationship becomes too close, I cut it off and I do not understand why. So we're going to try to answer that question. Um, some of it may depend, uh, maybe we might have to answer it in different ways because different people with different um, styles may have the same issue, but we're, we're going to try. And it's a very good question that comes up often when we work with couples, right? And yes. Um, so there are, well, I'm just going to, briefly state the attachment styles. Um, There's the secure attachment style, which is approximately 50% of the population. And um, just briefly, that person, that style, uh, people are comfortable with intimacy. They, They expect to be loved and they expect to be safe. And they're very, very lucky indeed. So that's just a brief description of the secure attachment style. Um, the anxious attachment style, oh, Karen, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I think what I want to add is that these attachment styles are um, styles that have been found to be consistent across cultures um, and that they reflect um, the earliest um, experience, the earliest caregiving experiences um, between humans um, and have been studied for the past 50 years. Um, So so there are these three distinct styles that have been identified um, that reflect our earliest caregiving environment and the way it's affected our expectations for relationships. Right. And, you know, there was something else you said when we talked privately that I think is important, is they're not rigid. Um, It's not like a person is a anxious attached person or and anxious or avoidant detached person. It's that we have traits and so we have, may have more or less of some of these traits. Sometimes they're mixed up and we have some of both, but nobody's like a fixed article, like we're flexible and we, um, but there, there is a, like a preponderance of some of the traits in a style that might define how we meet in relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, those clinicians who really work with attachment 
styles do very extensive interviews with people and ask very particular questions and to really determine um, the subtleties of somebody's attachment style. Right. Whereas in pop culture, it can tend to just be like, oh, you're a this or you're a that. Right. Right. In reality, doesn't create conversation that can be constructive. It it can lead to conversations that can be constructive or conversations that can be sort of, um, pigeonholing a person. Right. And I know like in a couple, I always say that you is the curse word or one of the curse words. And so the danger is that if I'm anxious and I'm kind of coming to you with anxiety about whether you still love me or, or why did you forget to call me? If you label me and say, well, there you go, you're being an anxious, you have an anxious attachment style. That, that's where it can really backfire. Yeah. So if, if instead you say to me, oh, I, I'm sorry, I see that you're anxious. I, I, tell me what I can do to, to alleviate that or to how can we talk about that? Then you're recognizing my anxiety, but you're meeting me with empathy. So right. that's the danger in labeling that we get to call somebody a name and we get in trouble in the relationship when we do that. Yeah, I think the goal of using this for couples is to increase empathy, not right. to decrease it. And and actually, when we increase the empathy, we can heal some of the underlying trauma that is causing right. some of those attachment traits um, that are either anxious or avoidant. So the, the other one is avoidant, 25%. Um, and again, briefly, um, that person needs to feel independent and strong and self-reliant and their their default is to try to set boundaries and and minimize uh apparently minimize closeness they need closeness also but their style is to create a boundary and protect themselves from too much closeness um again tell me well i think the and the idea of the parenting environment that would someone would develop an avoidant style as a compensation for is an environment where your emotional needs are being rejected by your parent. So you come to feel like it's better, safer to not have needs and to assume that your needs won't be um, experienced with kindness or welcome, welcomed. Um, so right. people who have a more avoidant style are tend to be quite self-reliant and can withdraw when feeling overwhelmed or, or, in, yeah, invaded, you know, there, there's a, there's a very, very important, uh, concept in gestalt theory called creative adjustment. And I think you're talking about that in, in, uh, with the attachment avoidance style, but, it, but of course it would apply to any of the personality styles. We, when we're children, we creatively adjust to our environment. We do what we need to do to survive, uh, what, we, what we need to do to protect ourselves. And these, these learning styles are so deeply embedded in our neural system and they're, they're so instinctive that we then use them in adulthood when we actually have more choices. But in a moment that where we're feeling fear or panic, we're not aware of the choices, we go to our creative adjustment, which is part of our attachment style. Yeah. It's really, it's really an amazing thing how, how that works, how 
you know, I, I sometimes give this like silly example of, uh, I had, um, I had to get, um, like, uh, eye surgery and I had these like things implanted in my eye, you know, just regular cataract surgery and it was no big deal, but I had to put drops in every day for like a long time. It was like a whole long drama. And then, then for like maybe a year after I would do two things. I would either say, oh my God, I think I forgot my drops. Oh no. But then I was like, oh, I don't need drops. Or, <laughs> or when I'd be going up to bed, I, and it went on for at least a year. Oh my gosh, I think I forgot to take out my contact lenses. And then I'd have to say to myself, no, 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 you don't wear contact lenses anymore. <laughs> you don't have to take them out. But what was so deeply embedded was the, um, you know, the habit the routine, what I was used to. And then I got traumatized when I thought I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And then I had to remind myself over and over again, uh, no, oh no, (laughs) you you can, you don't need to do that anymore. And I think that's what we need to do with our emotional trauma. No, we don't need to do that anymore. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be uh, overly uh, boundary. We we can just maybe learn to trust someone and to feel that we're lovable. But if it takes that long with the contact lenses, it it's yeah. it, it can take years and like maybe 10, 20 years to really undo the early childhood trauma. That's what I was thinking about. Um, and I know we'll get to the question later, but just in my experience, these very early patterns are so embedded that there's some of the hardest things to even begin to understand about oneself because your reaction feels so real and so vivid. Like I just need to get away from this person. They're oppressing me. There isn't even a sense that that might be a kind of way of organizing your experience that doesn't need to be. And um, I think that's why it can make couples get so pitched with each other. Right. And couples operating. Well, just that they uniquely trigger each other, couples, because we uniquely recreate the symbiotic bond. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say there's one that you you, uh, have talked about, which is the disorganized one. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Because I'm not sure where that fits in with the... Well, I wasn't sure uh, if you had talked about the anxious attachment style. I heard you talk about secure and avoidant, but I wanted to make well, sure. Well, I, I just briefly mentioned it, but if we want to ah. go into more detail now, I was going to just briefly mention it and, and then go into detail later. But um, yeah, so the anxious person is someone who, uh, I, you know, unlike the avoidant one whose, whose parent may have been consistently not present and whose creative adjustment was to learn to uh take care of themselves and be by themselves and uh, cut off emotion. The, the anxious person had an inconsistent parent um, and who was sometimes neglecting, sometimes present, but unpredictable. So their, their, their tendency is to, to be, to move toward the parent, but to always be anxious about whether or not the parent is going to be there, to, to not, not be secure, to not be, um, to always be worried about abandonment or, um, or disappointment. 
So that person in adulthood is very sensitive to the small fluctuations in the partner's moods and actions and may take that those behaviors personally when they're not necessarily intended to be personal. Yeah. Uh, so any anything else you want to say about that? No, I think no, I don't have anything to add. Okay. Um you know the uh, the other thing, like just as a as a something to to kind of use in, as in the background, is I think in um, our culture, I'm not sure if it's just our culture, but certainly in American culture, there's um, like a, a a tendency to feel that independence and self reliance is extremely important and um, and actually the the norm. So so there's like a, like people sometimes have a myth that. Um, we're supposed to be uh, independent. We're supposed to be, uh, you know, like it, the happiness comes from within us. It should come from within. And ideally, if we're in a relationship, it should be two strong, independent, self-sufficient people um, who are connected. It, and that, that, that myth, it, it, it's, kind, it's a myth <laughs> because if we're connected, we need each other, we depend on each other, um, and we regulate each other. The relationship is co-created, which is another gestalt uh, term, term, that there's never one person doing one thing, but we're co-creating all the time, and we're co-creating our relationship or, or our interaction. So the question we isn't should dependency exist, it's that dependency does exist, and that it's part of human connection. And, you know, we, when we see children, uh, we see how dependent they are on their caretakers, right? I mean, and how beautiful that dependency seems when we see it. When it's going well. When it's going well, right? Yeah. Um, and, and also we see how fearful kids can be, uh, even secure kids when the parent may maybe they might not see that parent. Um, they might lose sight of them or um, they may come home later from work than they're supposed to. Or when, when the routine gets changed, uh, even uh, like a relatively secure child can be, can become anxious. So dependence, it's really a, a, a part of the human connection. And if you've ever seen like gorillas or baboons in the zoo, you sort of see this, like you see that there's like in the in the Brooklyn Zoo. I don't. There's a, there's a family of baboons that lives there, and the mother she holds the baboon by the tail, the baby, and the baby tries to run away. And you see all the adolescents are playing in the in the nearby rocks, but that baby is held on so tightly, and it's not allowed to run away until the mother says to herself, <laughs> "I don't know how she decides." Okay. It's time to let the little one go. And then she lets go of the tail, and then that little one is allowed to run and play. But until then, it, it, she holds on like a magnet, and the, the little one tries to get away and can't. And um, maybe I've never seen the very, very young one where the little one might be snuggled up in, in the, you huh. know, the mother's breast. But um, it's a really interesting thing to see the baboons um, in action and how they recreate a family. And the father is in the background always too, with his arms crossed and huh. basically guarding his family 
and the message is if you dare come near <laughs> if you dare <laughs> come near them i will kill you or whatever but his arms are always crossed yeah and he's sitting like a guard so it's very funny to see i want to add one thing which is um i think this idea of um preferencing independence is um, particularly heightened in white European culture and not as much in other cultures that are present mm -hmm. in this country right, right. and in the world. Um, and I think that part of what is emerging now um, is, is, is a broader recognition of connection, whether we know it or not, um, but that the sense of even if you think you're independent, you're you're connected and your independence may actually be creating um, feeling states in other people that you're not aware of. So I think that um, that goes for these attachment styles too. And I, I would also add that some of what I think influences our earliest caregiving experiences and our earliest caregiving environments are, are um, forces that are beyond just the, the, the mother, child, parent, child, caregiver, child, dyad or triad or quad, it's also sort of where people are situated in their lives and in society um, and the forces of poverty and racism and genderism can affect sure. the parenting environment and the level of stress in a home and how successful people can be in terms of being available to each other and available to their growing children. Right. So that's important. Um, I think too often these ideas of attachment just get relegated to just what's going on inside the family, but what's going inside the, on inside a family is also connected to all the larger forces of our world, um, which I think kind of leads to the, the last category, which is a attachment style that's only been recognized more recently, which is called the disorganized attachment. Right, right. So um, this attachment style has a much higher prevalence in families um, who are also struggling economically. Hmm. So these styles are, this is, this is sort of when early caregivers are just sort of um, not reliable and also angry and abusive so that at times a child can feel welcomed and at times they're, they're intensely threatened, which leads to, um, a kind of disorganization where children don't really know what to do. Right. And it is, we could think of it as tra traumatized, you know, we could also think of it that way, but it's considered sort of the, the hardest one to work with. Right. Cause it's very extreme, right? The, the extremes are um, intense. I can be connected or I am not connected and, and it's. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm, and that I'm, the caregivers are a source of fear. So it's fair. How do you even attach? It's like you don't even get the experience of attaching when you're afraid of your caregiver. Um, Although the anxious person, I think, could also be afraid of a caregiver. There could be maybe not as as extreme, but yeah, there, there are elements of fear. Yeah, but I think there's more elements of safety in the anxious mm -hmm. than in the. I think it's good to mention that Winnicott's idea. Uh, D.W. Winnicott, a British psychoanalyst oh. who worked a lot with children, a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And he said that the what he observed was um, a typical parenting uh, relationship is a 
third of the time the caregiver is attuned with their child, a third of the time they're misattuned, and a third of the time they're repairing. Mm -hmm. So even in a secure attachment, it's not like a parent is always knowing, or in a couple, you're not always knowing. It's also that you have the ability to repair with each other and not take things so personally, because that's also what builds the strength of a relationship. You know, the other thing Winnicott said, which is what I thought you're, I love to quote this too, that he said that in order to have a secure attachment, you're, you, you need to have 85% of your attachment needs met. And if, huh. and, and the 85% strengthens you enough to manage the 15% when your needs are not met. So right. I'm, I'm not sure where wrong. he got, I know, <laughs> I don't know where he got that from, but that's, but I love that. Um, and it sounds about right. Yeah. Because nobody's going to be perfect. Yeah. But if they're perfect enough, then you have the internal strength to kind of uh, like put it aside. It's funny because my kids once said, one of my kids once said to me when I was obviously in a bad mood when I was growing up, so they must have the 85%. They looked at me and I was, they they said, what's wrong, mommy? You're you're in a bad mood, and then they said you must not have gone swimming today. So they they came up with an explanation, but yeah. they but they saw it as aberrant behavior, and they didn't yeah. take it. You know, they didn't take it personally. It wasn't about them; it was about me. I was yeah. acting weird, right. different, because so, they had enough experience of you not acting that way and being open to them, right? But if it were somebody who had a parent who was stimulating more of an avoidance style, the parent might have brushed them off and said, I don't know what you're talking about and made their emotional needs um, right, right. diminished or disappeared. Right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. There are all kinds of quotes I hear from people, you know, enough out of you or uh, this conversation is over or, I'm done with you or, you know, kids hear these kinds of things over and over. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's very painful to feel dismissed. Yeah. It's one of the things I think when, when people come into therapy, they come in to achieve a different kind of connection, right? They have an expectation and uh, that, that we're going to be there that we're going to be that person who listens, who's attends to their needs, who's, um, who's going to be, and, and sometimes I always get amazed that from the beginning in the first session, they'll tell us all kinds of things that you wouldn't tell anybody else, but they yeah. trust, they trust us right away because they have an ideal of what we're supposed to be like. And hopefully we meet that ideal. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. I, I think I think of it a little differently. I actually think people have a hope, a hope, mm-hmm. and they also have a dread because, um, getting to a place where you actually can taking in something you haven't gotten is also painful right. and they have a dread that you're going to do to, I'm going to do to them what has been done before. So I, I feel like sometimes I, I start with people and there's a lot of jockeying and pushing back and exploration and sort of challenging what's possible as well. And interesting. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think they come with a hope that something might be different, but I, I feel like we're also wired to kind of be comfortable. Even if it's uncomfortable, we're wired to be expecting and sort of comfortable with the same, which is sort of why I think couples get into relationships where their attachment needs are, you know, reflected like a 
anxious person, like the classic, you know, we talked about like a person who has an ambivalent attachment often ends up with someone with an avoidant attachment because it kind of, they, they right. see that distance in the, in that person as being so reassuring, or they see the steadiness or the, of the, that person not having needs as being kind of reassuring, but then they, over time, they start to resent that person because they're not right. ending to them enough. And it's a replication of their earliest experience. And right. So. That's so interesting, right? How that happens because you, yeah. you, you end up um, fighting about the very thing that attracts you in the first place. Like why, right. why, why does the, why the avoidant person can be attracted to the anxious person because that person um, gives them some access to emotion or, or liveliness that, that they've cut off in themselves. Yeah. And then the same thing will happen that you've described. Like, ugh, like what's wrong with you? You're always whining. You're always complaining. Like it, the, the person starts to attack the very thing that was, um, drew them to, to, the, to the other person. Yeah. yeah. And there's also, I guess, a small subset of people who have a combination of anxious and avoidant, mm-hmm. which is apparently only three to 5% in, I think, American population. And, um, I guess that's, that person vacillates between being anxious and then putting a person off. Right. Right. Yeah. And we, you know, we have different role models too. Like we could have a, a like a mother who was more in, invoked the anxious style, but a father who invoked the avoidance style or even a, a, a maybe a grandparent or a teacher who evoked the secure style. Yeah. Attachment style. So we might, we have different little, you know, attachment styles in our neural networks. And yeah, I I always think we want to reach for the secure one in people because most people have had someone, a a grandparent, a teacher, like some model of someone who's been um, secure and, and dependable. And, but again, the, what emerges is the danger, like the, the need to defend against danger. So that, that one becomes primary and we organize around defending against any um, indication that that might be present in our partner. But then if we can access the other one, <laughs> we, we, we can begin to, um, to kind of react from that place. And, 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 you know, and love ourselves. I always say to people, like, you're the parent now. We're, we're the parents. After about 18, 19, 20, we're the parents. And we have to be responsible for being that parent to ourselves. And if we do the same thing to ourselves as was done to us, so retroflect, <laughs> um, then we're just reinforcing that anxious style or that avoidant style. But if we can take that little person that and parent it in a different way. Um, take the little child and say, you're safe with me. Um, I love you. You're, you're special. If we can start to really, really feel that, then we can begin to also expect that other people should feel that about us and that we should reasonably expect that. But we, yeah. we, we have to be the parents and uh, it's a big job. It is. I think that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate gestalt therapy and why I think it's a good, really good therapy for couples work because uh, we ask people to really notice how they are experiencing themselves in the moment. 
And so much of couples work is about helping people in the moment be with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have that beginning step of awareness. Like I am really agitated right now. If people just are in that mode of attacking and defending themselves and don't, I think in gestalt therapy, we really ask people to notice what are you experiencing right now? And what are these ideas you have about this person and begin to sort of to, to understand that that's something you are doing. It's not just being done to you. It's a, I think it's a really great, um, theory for couples work and right. any kind of dialogical work. Right. Not it also intimate, not even just intimate couples, but it also yeah. helps us to take a breath and be aware of what we're feeling and needing and to begin to be able to speak from I need or I, I feel with the I instead mm-hmm. of immediately attack and go to the you are, you know, so I, I'd like us to have some time together this evening is it invites uh, cooperation and, and it's vulnerable. It invites somebody to care about us um, as opposed to you never spend time with me. All you ever do is talk on your phone. Um, that's like an attack and that invites the person to, to distance and, and it may be attacked back. So we never get, we never get what we want by not being vulnerable. We only get what we want by being vulnerable and yeah. the secure person is by default able to be vulnerable. Right. Because their needs have been met. Like if you, when you were talking about that, I was picturing an anxious, a, a person with this anxious pattern who can't come forward and say, I'd like to spend time with you because internally they have the message that, well, I'm not worthy of be, of spending someone spending time with me. I don't believe that I can actually ask for that. And so then it comes out as you don't want to spend time with me there. They have this expectation that's already in operation that my partner's doesn't want to, doesn't want to pay attention to me right. um, or they'll be angry at me for wanting something. So to get to the point of anticipating that their their needs might be received well is a big job. Right. Right. And to have that expectation. It's yeah. also, it's also like such a, um, I, I always think of this, that it's such a, an insult to the other person. So if I need you, I'd like you to be kind to me. I'd like you to listen to me. If I could say that to you, then I'm thinking, oh, you're a nice person. You're, you're going to be nice to me. But if I'm thinking, oh, all you think about is yourself or, or, or you're not going to be interested in me or you're not, then I'm thinking you're just a selfish person who only cares about yourself. So my projection onto you is very insulting. And I don't mm-hmm. think people realize that when they, I think uh-huh. they think they're protecting themselves with that projection, uh-huh. Uh-huh. but I don't think they realize that they're defiling the character of the other person. Right. Um, and I, I, giving that person the benefit of the doubt. So it kind of goes both ways. I think that's true. I, I have a couple where um, the, the woman, it's a heterosexual cisgendered couple. And so the woman, um, she accuses her partner of being sort of like a monster and kind of, you know, doesn't care about her needs. And it is, it's insulting to her partner because he's like, I don't want to be seen. I'm not a monster. You make me into a monster. And then there's an impasse. Right. Then there's the impasse and the fighting. Yeah. So if let's kind of just go before, I don't want to forget the question. Like, 
and and that that question is, is it's so interesting because it it seems counterintuitive, right? If I'm if I'm an anxious person, why would I pick um, an avoidant person? If I'm an avoidant person, why would I pick an anxious person? And I think it's true that the avoidant people almost never pick each other, right? Because they yeah. That's, what, like, that's what they say. <laughs> that's what they say. <laughs> like, why would I want to be with somebody who's just, because the avoidant person deep down inside does have like all of us a need for connection, even if it's covered over with a lot of layers. So they'll pick the anxious person because the anxious person, again, has that um, access to uh, emotion and the anxious person will pick the avoidant person. So if we, if we kind of respond to that question, um, why do I, so that person, we're, I, I'm going to assume I cut it off. So I assume that person has more of an avoidant style because he, he cuts off the relationship when the intimacy, um, becomes too close, right? When That's what I was imagining make, too. You know, so this is just, we don't know this person really intimately, but we're going to imagine that. And, yeah. um, that, that the, um, the, the pull is toward connection. Um, but then it has to be, if it gets too close or the person is too needy <laughs> or, you know, too demanding, then, um, or, or maybe even if, if it starts to feel too permanent, like even if the person maybe is moderately demanding, but if it starts to feel like it's, this is going toward a permanent relationship, then by definition, that person is going to expect me to be there. So that becomes a pressure, right? Yeah. Um, a commitment, even, even if the person might not be super avoidant, just the, the, I'm thinking the permanence of a relationship in and of itself, the permanence looming <laughs> uh -huh. could, could feel dangerous, right? Yeah. And, and I it could be, it could be the permanence or it could be just, uh, even, in a, in, on a, you know, in an encounter of a moment of feeling close and then what might arise is a desire to get away. And, um, right. So it could be the moment. Yeah. I'm looking at some of these statements that, um, when we read the book by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller attached some of the statements, uh, that they talked about in terms of an avoidant person could respond with things like you're too sensitive, demanding, you're too needy or I don't want to talk about it, or stop analyzing everything, or what do you want from me? I didn't do anything wrong. That uh, they will consider your needs on a certain matter only to disregard them very soon after. So I think that, I don't know if the person who asked this question notices any of those things in himself, a sense right, of, right. I, I need to get away from me, you're too much. Some sense of too much, or I'm going to lose my independence. But I think right. what's so tricky about this is that this is what I, you know, I know there are books devoted to this. Like it feels so natural to him in a way it feels beyond his control. He doesn't understand why he's doing it. It's, it's like, right, right. that's how deep these patterns are that some part of him doesn't know why he's doing it, but it feels so necessary to do. And I really feel for that experience in a person and their perplexity around it. Right. Um, right. So yeah. I guess there's a lot to explore um, for all of us. So I hope we're being, we're answering that question a little bit and uh, it, 
Right. There are other questions that that kind of underlie a simple answer, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I could also imagine a person who's anxious. If they start to get close, they might get afraid of being abandoned, mm-hmm. and that could cause them to pull away as well. Right. Um, That's true. So, you know, that fear might be something around then noticing all the cues of what, like how that person doesn't actually see who they really are and that they're going to end up feeling like this person is not really going to be there for them. Um, Yeah. And fear is, fear is a very compelling, uh, like emotion that invites us, desperately invites us to protect ourselves. So we have to be both again, loving and, and appreciative of ourselves in terms of where the fear comes from. And then also the spouse or the partner of someone has to be the, the job, the work of being in a relationship is to not take it personally. Yeah. To see that the other person's injured child is emerging and, um, and try to have empathy and care rather than defense. It's so hard to do because again, so defense is our instinct. We're but if you can it. begin to notice, it's like I say to people, sometimes even individual clients who come in and they just feel so tortured, tormented by their, whatever part, their partnership, their intimate partnership. And um, I'll say to them, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You wouldn't be in this situation with this turmoil if there weren't some part of you that need that you needed to look at. And so instead of just making this about your partner, what is it, what is it that you're learning about yourself? And really, I think if we put it in an attachment lens, it's like, what about your style? Are you, what is this worst nightmare that you need to see? Cause yes, something very dysregulating happened to you. And now you're choosing someone for the, so you have the opportunity to work that through. Right. Um, right. Maybe the partnership won't last, but maybe the next one will be, you know, you'll find something and be able to establish another one in the future. Right. But it's so important to emphasize that it is an opportunity to work it through. It is an opportunity to heal because if we can be with this person that we've chosen and the other way around also, um, and care and have empathy and, you know, to the wounded part, and the wounded part begins to heal. It begins to feel, oh, I deserve that. I, I deserve care. Uh, I'm hurt. I deserve love and affection instead of being attacked and blamed. Yeah. So if somebody else can do it for you, then you begin to do it for yourself and vice versa. And the more I can do it for myself, the less I'm going to be likely to attack you. You know, it, it goes right. both ways, but it's co-created. Yeah. And it's it's life's journey, really, that we yeah take together. Yeah. And I think there's so many, there's, you know, part of what I love about being a therapist is seeing those moments in which a person can shift out of like a dynamic can shift so quickly. If, if somebody speaks from their own experience in a not attacking way, sometimes the other person can come forward in such a different way in a split second. Right. Right. Not that it doesn't take a lot of ongoing work, but that that you can really change the atmosphere between sure. two people. Because it's, some- it's that thing of I'm saying I need, right, and, and I'm seeing you as this wonderful person who can maybe give me what I need. 
and inviting you and you're feeling honored versus you never uh, and never do or never or and then I'm attacking you and then you have to defend yourself. Right. So, so it's such a, it, either way, the cycle repeats itself. I mean, or yeah. get a new cycle or the other cycle repeats itself. Yeah. But it's so hard to be vulnerable when, when you've been hurt, when you've been disappointed, when you've been attacked. It's so hard to be vulnerable. Yeah. And yet we have to be, we have to alter our defensive structure. Well, I think to be vulnerable, you need to feel enough support. And so I think the question is, if your partner's not giving you the support and the ground to, to know that you aren't the things that they're saying you are, then can you find it in yourself? Mm-hmm. Right. So if the anxious person can find within themselves, uh, no, I really do have needs. I have a right to have those needs. And, um, or the avoidant person, really. Um, then they're not going to, you know, an anxious person isn't going to just go along, do whatever it takes to stick, keep that connection and keep enduring a avoidant person saying you're too much. They'll be able to say, no, actually, this is what I need. And this is what, and do you want to give it to me? Right. And then right. they can, and they can know that they'll be okay. I think for anxious people, there's really a lot of work around knowing they can be okay. Even if this connection doesn't work out, that their well-being right. also is dependent on their connection to themselves. Right. And that's so important, right? That's what I, that's the part of you're the parent now. Right. And, and I can actually remember like maybe 50 years ago when I was about 25, I can remember the moment in therapy with my therapist that I shifted from looking at my little girl, you know, because in Gestalt you do this experiment with a little girl. Ew, you're so needy. You're so weak. You're so pathetic. And I shifted. <laughs> and I remember the moment of shifting to... I love you. You're, you know, I'm here for you. I love you. You're, you're adorable. You're sweet. You're, you're vulnerable, but I love you. And I can remember that micro moment. And I feel it was like the beginning of me becoming the parent to myself. Right. Right. And, um, and that's our job because otherwise we can spend our whole lives being angry that somebody wasn't there for us and re producing that with somebody who's not going to be there for us. But, you know, too bad. Somebody wasn't there for us. <laughs> and, and now we get a chance to be there for us. Right. And, think, and that's a, anyhow. I think the irony is that I think, you know, most of us, and I could include myself in this, like get involved in a relationship thinking, now I'm finally going to get the love I never had. But the irony is usually relationships. I mean, sometimes that's part of it, but also part of it is, now I'm going to see that I have to give myself all the love that I never had because this person's not giving it to me and it's causing problems when I keep asking for it from them in right. the way I'm doing. Right. Only needing it every time. And if every time, it, if, if yeah, if you can't tolerate the not having, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, somebody, how did this come up? Um, some, somebody was talking about their anxiety about like losing their partner and how they couldn't trust that the person would be there for them. And the, the truth is that like, even if we can trust that somebody is loyal and dependable and they're going to be there for us and they'll never leave us uh, like volitionally, 
somebody could die, right? We don't, we don't get to have like a guarantee that we're going to be connected to this one person for the rest of our lives. We, we could lose them in, in a tragic way. And ultimately what has to be our salvation really is the feeling of we can trust ourselves we can trust ourselves to get through a crisis or, or a loss. We're going to always be with ourselves. Uh, we can trust ourselves to be there and to manage and to cope and to yeah. trust the foundation that is within ourselves. So ultimately, you know, it's one of the existential dilemmas that Irving Young poses, or maybe he's got them from people like, hundred years ago, but one of them, one of them is I want to be connected um, forever to somebody. And that's yeah. what we want. And the dilemma is that intuitively we know that we can't, that, that the own, that there is no person right. <laughs> that we, that we can absolutely 100% depend upon because even through tragedy, we might lose somebody. So the only person is ourselves. I think that I would, I would say the only person is ourselves on a deep existential level. And I don't think, especially in Western culture, we think enough about, I mean, there's so much strain on the nuclear family and so much strain for our one partner to be everything for us. And yet all of us, many of us participate in community where we get our other needs met right. outside of this primary partnership. And, you know, there's even, I think, a kind of challenge to the notion of um, uh, monogamy now with people choosing to be in polyamorous relationships. And I don't know how attachment styles play out. I know that um, uh, Esther Perel thinks you can only really be in love with one person at a time. So even if you're in a polyamorous relationship, there's always a primary person. And I guess those attachment needs to play out most, but um, I think it's, I think it's the both and it is only ourselves and we also need people. We need pe people in many different ways in our right. lives and that can support your intimate partnership. Right. And, and I'm not suggesting that we, that, that, that only that, that we can or should only depend upon ourselves, but just that when we have this anxiety that there's no guarantee, that's all I'm yeah. saying. And, and that then, fundamentally we have to trust that we could handle a grief filled situation should it come up a loss uh yeah an abandonment you know it will be painful it will be terrible but can't but but if we if we trust that we can handle it then we don't need to uh, like go after the other person with anxiety yeah. And constantly get them to reassure us that they'll always be there. Um, yeah. You know, so it's like a, I don't know, like a mix of, yes, of course, we need to be connected and dependent in a healthy way and co-create a relationship. And we need to feel like we love ourselves and we can trust ourselves. And we can find support and meaning even without this other person. If, if need be. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and we, we have, like, different friends, support, self-support, uh, 
communities that we belong to. So, yeah, we don't necessarily want to go there, but if we have to. Right. And actually, for most people who, as you get older, it becomes more of a reality that one partner is probably going to leave, die before the other one. Outlive the other. And that that's a like a whole phase of life. Well, I didn't think we'd get to that in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's a whole other existential. That's a whole other thing. The other other existential issue, there's four of them, but one of them is I want to live forever. I want to be immortal. And I know that I'm going to die. And it goes for the partner, you know, your partner too. You want. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those are the, do you think there's more we would want to offer the person who asked that question? Anything, any support they might need to? Well, they might, after listening to this, and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I think I have some articles on the website and maybe I'll put more on about the attachment styles. I guess the important thing is for them to sort of take a look at and uh, be curious about what their attachment style is, right? And uh, what their early childhood experiences were with their caregivers that might have created one of the attachment styles. And then, like you said, it could be an avoidant person who gets anxious when there's connection and has to run away because they might get disappointed. They would be foolish or, and vulnerable to trust. Yeah. Um, or it could be the avoidant uh, the the avoidant person who runs away when too much closeness happens because they're going to be afraid of being overwhelmed. So whichever one, yeah, but take a look, take a look at the styles and see what fits. Maybe um, there's also that um, there's a, the full attachment inventory is a really long process and usually you need, you need to find someone who's trained in it to do the Mm -hmm. attachment inventory, adult attachment inventory. But there is this, that website, the attachment project that does a little quick quiz that, and then offers resources. Okay, good. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pass that. I'll put that on the website and pass that along the attachment, the attachment project, the attachment project. Okay. You take a little online quiz and then it Mm -hmm. offers you resources. Cool. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I guess hopefully this will just invite like some personal exploration for that person. Right. And, and curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. To be curious mm-hmm. about what, what you're experiencing and not make it about the other person. So what else? Are you, uh, the, I don't know what else. Um, anything else before we end that you want to say? Um. No, it's been fun talking to you. Yeah, same here. <laughs> I mean, because we only have a few more minutes left. Um, I, I love that we, you know, well, we have a lot that I, I feel we learn from animals, watching them connect and bond. And um, But I'll just, like, I, I just thought randomly of one funny thing that I, I think it's in one of the Ethan and Alan Cohn books. It's one of those books. It's They talk about... Um, like when you when you're in the uh, delivery room or and your baby gets put in the neonatal room 
right? Mm-hmm. And there's like thousands of babies, like not thousands, but <laughs> but, but usually about a hundred babies, like one yeah. after the other. And you see which one is yours and you go, oh, I love you, this baby so much. And they all look exactly the same. They're all like wrapped up in the little rags, <laughs> but you instantaneously bond to yours, the one that's yeah. your baby. And it's a kind of funny, it's a funny moment. And it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and the babies are hardwired to pick out, like babies can pick out which thing smells like their mother from right, right, really early age. It's really yeah. amazing, right? We're hardwired for connection and intimacy in that way, a kind of full body knowing of each other. Uh, okay. Well, I think, unless there's something, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that we are supposed to stop. I think we so probably unless, are. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I hope that we, like we've, inv- and I think that's a great website and I'm going to put it on, but I hope we've invited people to be curious about their personality style, their attachment style, and then to be empathic toward themselves yes. and also be curious about the attachment style of a partner and be empathic toward that partner. And again, by doing that, we heal and we reparent. We get another chance. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're the parent now. We get another chance. And uh, we get another chance to build a family, too, like a, um, yeah. a connection. And, it, and we're lucky we get another chance. We are. I think intimate partnership is like one of the biggest levers of change and so good to get support for that process. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you want to engage in a different way. Yeah. It, it's funny. We're talking about attachment styles and anxiety. Oh, we get one minute. I was saying it's hard to, it's hard to feel spontaneous. Yeah. If we're feeling like we're going to get, get cut off in, at any moment, but we, we, we have one more minute. So, um, you know, I think we've said a lot though. I think we have too. I feel satisfied. Me too. Thank you for tuning in to Ask Arlo. Arlene Majorano has another episode of the podcast coming soon. So keep checking back on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. And be sure to visit askarlo.com to ask questions and to find out more about the show. Until our next show, keep finding new ways to renew the relationships in your life.